God, we remember this morning that by your mighty word, you called the whole world into existence. And that you are the one who calls life out of barrenness and hopelessness. And that you are the one who creates a future where there is no future. You are the one who makes promises that you surely will keep. Would you speak this morning? Would you call us? Would you create life in our barren situations? Would you show yourself to us as the one who is the promise keeper? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm Jana. I want to welcome you here, especially if you're joining us for the first time. We're glad you're with us this morning. What a gift it is to gather together and worship the God who has created all things. What a sweet gift it is. So we've entered a new season in the life of the church, a season we call ordinary time. An ordinary time begins just after the Spirit coming at Pentecost and goes all the way up until Advent. So basically most of the year, from now until almost December. And it is this in-between space, both literally and figuratively, that the majority of our life happens. This ordinary time these daily normal patterns that make up our lives. That space when we're washing the dishes and folding clothes. The space where we drink a cup of coffee and share a meal. The space when we drive to work and send an email. The ordinary stuff of our lives. And the color for ordinary time is green. It's the color of growth. And often we think about things that are ordinary as the time and space where nothing is happening. But the poet Annie Dillard reminds us that how we spend one day is, of course, how we spend our whole lives. It is in the daily ordinariness of life where we actually live out what we believe and who we follow. We're spending the first half of this season of ordinary time in these narratives from our Old Testament readings. We're walking through the stories of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we're paying attention to how God is working out his promise of redemption through very ordinary and a quite dysfunctional family, as we will come to see. And we're especially paying attention to how this is the family through which God himself will come into the world in the person of Jesus. And so I want to invite us to pay attention in the coming months as we go through these narratives, to pay attention that the texture and depth of these stories actually won't allow us to extract out a simple moral lesson. 
to add to our list of self-improvement as if Abraham or you or I are the center of the drama. Instead, we will come to see that the primary agent in all of these stories, including our own, is God. That God is the one who created all of life from nothing. And God is the one who is recreating the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and sustaining all of the cosmos by the power of the Spirit. These stories invite us to shift our orientation from thinking about God as a part of our life to thinking about our life as a part of God's. That God is the one who has been and will continue to be faithful. And it's on the fidelity of God that the whole future of the people of God rests. John started us off last week in Genesis 1 where we heard the Hebrew creation narrative and learned about God's creative goodness and delight in all that he had made. And today we're going to enter the story at quite a different spot in chapter 12. And really it's a totally different genre than what has happened up until the story at this point, Genesis 1 through 11, is really about like the history of humankind. And here in Genesis 12, it funnels to the story about a particular people, the history of Israel. And this matters to us because this is our history as well. That the history of Israel is the family through which Jesus comes. And so it's also the history of the church. Just before we get to our reading in chapter 12, chapter 11, right there at the end, is the first that we hear of this man named Abram, who most of us here know as Abraham. And surprisingly, there's not a very lengthy introduction for Father Abraham, this major figure in three major world religions. Leading up to our text, we're given a genealogy of Abram, and really we come to know two things. One, he's the son of Terah, and two, his wife Sarai is childless. She's barren. Their family genealogy has come to a halt. Barrenness throughout the scriptures is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. And we will see this repeated over and over again in our Genesis accounts. And so the context in which we enter the story this morning is that this family has no foreseeable future. They're, they don't have power within themselves to continue on. And there is no way around this barrenness. Our reading in Genesis 12 begins really not so differently than Genesis 1. Our passage begins with God speaking something new into existence. A new family, a new people. And a fundamental conviction of our faith is not so much that God is, but that God speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word made his home among us. 
And so our text this morning begins, and the Lord said. And this new beginning in chapter 12 doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from the call of God, from the speech of God. And we hear this reflected again in our Romans reading, that this is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. This is resurrection speech, that this God is the same God who will raise Jesus from the dead. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And this is Abram's part, and this is quite a demanding call, especially in the culture in which he lived. And then God continues, and this is what God will do. This is God's part. This is God's promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is an incredible call. And a call that Abram knows and that you and I know that he cannot make happen on his own. Abram and Sarai are already old and they cannot bear children. How can they be made into a great nation? This is an impossible call. Yet these are the people that God calls. And Abram and Sarai will be blessed, and that blessing will overflow from them to the whole world. Not because they can accomplish it on their own, but because the one who calls is actually capable of keeping his promises. And you and I, thousands of years later, are evidence that God is a God who keeps his promises that he is capable and able of enacting the call that he sends. And then there is this necessary response from Abram to this call. And while the heavy lifting part is God's part, creating a future where there is no future, the call begins with this terse imperative from God to Abram, go. Go, a call to a dangerous and risky departure from what he knows, from what is normal, from what is safe, from what is comfortable. A departure from understanding his life as his own. And we hear this same call in our gospel reading from Jesus to Matthew. And it sounds like this, follow me, follow me. And so Abram stands for us this morning as the prototype of all disciples that would come to follow. And so Abram, as well as Matthew, really without any noted objections, he goes. He packs up his stuff gathers his belongings, and he sets out. 
And it turns out that this journey of faith is not a straight shot to the promised land. And it doesn't go at all as he expected it would go. And this windy journey that we hear throughout these next couple of verses really typifies the life of faith. They go from place to place to place, and there are already people in the land of promise, and there's still no child on the horizon. Is God really going to do this? Is God really capable of keeping his promises? And then we see in Abram's journey that it's punctuated along the way by building these altars to the Lord, recalling again and again and again that God will act in order to keep his promises. And we will see in the coming weeks that the working out of God's promises are a long time coming. And they never happen in the way that Abram thought or hoped. And we recognize this in our own lives. Yes, God is forming a new people, beginning with Abram and making its way to you and I, but not in the ways we expect, and certainly not on the timeline that we hoped. And this is what we're doing here this morning and what we do every single Sunday. We gather and we remember that God is faithful. And we have built this altar here in Shambly to remember that God is the one who will keep his promises. And surely God will bring hope into our barren relationships. And surely he will make a way in our situations that seem to have no way. And surely he will sustain our children in a world that we did not anticipate them growing up in. And surely he will form our church into a community that offers life and blessing to those around us. Surely he will set us free from the sins that bind us. Surely this is the God who keeps his promises. And it is on the fidelity of God that our whole life depends. And this is what we recall this morning and each time that we gather here that God is faithful and we are safe in his care. And so the question comes to us this morning, will we go? Will we go? Will we recapitulate this pattern of Abraham, this willingness to follow God, to lean into the fidelity of God? And you and I often have a harder time with this kind of call. It's very counterintuitive to our cultural values, the notion of being called beyond ourselves of giving ourselves over to something than our own purposes. It seems like a very odd way in our world to understand our lives. Certainly an odd way to live our lives. But this going or this following is fundamental 
to the Christian faith and this call for us to go and to follow stands before us the whole of our lives. And for some of us, it might come to us this morning for the very first time. And for many of us, I would guess, it comes to us for the hundredth time. Will you go? Will you follow? This narrative names something kind of fascinating about God, and that is that he calls people like Abram and people like Sarai and people like you and I to participate with him in bringing life and blessing to the world around us. We partner with him. And if you've ever worked on a collaborative project, which I'm assuming many of you have, for better or worse, some of us against our wills, we can know that actually there's something that happens in collaboration that can't happen any other way. There's something that happens when collaboration, when people start to work together in collaboration, something emerges from that that is new, that can't exist if this person does this and this person does that. And so there's something about the creative goodness of God and that he calls us to collaborate with him. And that collaboration creates new possibilities that were not existent prior to it. And this is what we're up to in the world. This is the vocation of the church, this divine collaboration, this community of life and blessing, a community that goes and follows. And this text doesn't end with the call of Abram. Rather, that call from Haran is extended to us this morning. So may God catch your attention on this very ordinary day, in this very ordinary season, and may you hear the call to go, to collaborate with God in bringing life and blessing to the world around you, and may you have the courage to respond. Amen.